tuning into Power Athlete Radio. If you've been following this program for any length of time, you know that it has no format and blurs the line between information and entertainment. In keeping with that theme of having absolutely no theme, we welcome the most interesting man in the world, patriarch and father of Power Athlete founder, Robert Alden Wellborn. That's right, this week John's dad is here to talk about, well, basically everything. In this episode, Mr. Wellborn takes us through the Wellborn genealogy, the history since the dawn of man, and throws in some thought-provoking pearls of wisdom for good measure. And if I may take a moment to get a little bit sentimental, we all thought this podcast would prove to be just another fad, like the internet or pockets, and despite our having initial reservations about its success, we are grateful for you, the roughly tens of millions of listeners who tune in every week. And with that, I bring you this, the 200th episode of Power Athlete Radio. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? Or what? Right? Is that still cool? No, it's no? not cool It's totally fine. <laughs> you have Luke, John, Tex. We're sitting around uh, with a special guest. We're in uh, in Camp Wellborn, and we're going to deliver you the 200th, technically 201st, but 200th episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. 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 So what's up? Nothing. I just am amazed that we're sitting here at 200 episodes. I mean, it really just seems like one really long episode, but <laughs> the fact that we have effectively reached 200 episodes is amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm even more stoked that we get to have our 200th episode with, with my dad sitting here. So we get to, you know, talk a little bit. So, you know, while this is the premier podcast on strength and conditioning, I hope you guys realize that this probably will go all over the map as we normally do. Yeah. yeah this the subject matter. Yeah. The subject matter. Yeah. We don't even have to talk about strength and conditioning <laughs> to be a premier podcast, but uh, yeah, Bob Wellborn is here. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here for this momentous occasion. That's right. Uh, 200 episodes. I can remember when John merely talked about this and put together maybe one or two of the first ones and they just seem to have blossomed forth and he's often shared with me some of the very famous people that he's been able to interview and the things that, yeah, that we tricked. they brought to the program. And, uh, <laughs> well, the best was my dad was like, so wait a minute, so you just turn on the microphone and you talk to people, like interview them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what do you guys talk about? I'm like, we're, talk- we're supposed to talk about strength and conditioning, but a lot of times we don't talk about strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. We really just talk about whatever's pertinent at that point. And I think what well, we've done a great job on, and um, while I view most other podcasts as fucking hacks, mm-hmm. uh, I think what we've <laughs> like done... Like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Joe Rogan hack. <laughs> uh, I think what we've done really well is create a interesting, uh, you know, just a banquet of you know bank of people that have really come to our uh, podcast mm-hmm. and it, it's really all over the map as we were you know doing some prep for this the other day I'm looking back and just trying to think it like uh, you know how we ran over these people and what I realized it was a lot like you know Forrest Gump and his feather mm-hmm. we just as time went on we met different people and invited them on and it allowed us to go to one person and go down and it's really been just a uh, an opportunity for us to not only learn and progress but um, for us to create some really great uh, relationships yeah uh, for sure what I've enjoyed is just the ability to s- scratch an itch if we have a question or there's something that our research we can't answer it we just find who wrote the research who did this who's the leading expert no matter no matter the field whether it's nutrition or strength and I invite them on you know one of my uh, personal favorites is our uh, forge agronomist 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, yeah, Peter Ballerstead. Um, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time whenever we go out and shopping and, you know, like, what's the grass-fed beef versus this? And, you know, we're at this whole thing. Like, what would Peter Ballerstead do? So the mm-hmm. other night we had a, you know, birthday party for my son, Cash's first birthday, and I barbecued out here and we went to Costco and got some really bitchin' fillets and everybody's like, God, these are so amazing. You know, it's like, who's this butcher you yeah, found here, John? Yeah, yeah, did you find this, like, Costco? Uh, you know, yeah, like, obscure butcher and, you know, dripping springs that, you know, raises these cows by hand. I'm like, no, I bought them at Costco. And Bo was so amazed. Like, yeah. Wait a minute, what about this? And I'm like, Peter Ballerstead said. Yes. And I'm like, and that's you know my deal. So I go back to you know. So I mean, Peter's deal was was pretty amazing because we had really been working on this uh, within the framework of not only uh, you know grass fed meat, you know, uh, sustainable, uh, you know, uh, favorable omega three profiles, and I you know even ironically was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast as he's uh, pumping his um, you know beef box or whatever it is mm-hmm. that primal box, and he's talking about you know higher omega threes and a lot of the things that we thought for a long yeah. time. Well, which that, are true, uh, but it marginally. Is, well, marginally given other lifestyle you know like eating a walnut yes well that was peter's thing if you're eating beef for omega-3s then don't have a walnut yeah because you know those uh you know uh, wasn't it crazy he said if we were to get the best place to get fish oil is from fish isn't that crazy yeah yeah just eat some fish (laughs) he also said that you know um that you cannot raise rudiments on anything but foliage Mm -hmm. like they have to be raised on grass. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this idea that you're bringing them in, he's like, for the majority of them, it is not cost effective to raise, you know, rudiment animals on anything other than grass grass, and yeah. forage. And that they forage and that's part of their deal. And that, you know, when they have these whole feedlot things, that's like at the end of the cycle when they're taken in, dropped off. And, mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, that really exists. But for the most part, it's pretty accurate. For the record, this is episode 152, April... April 22nd, 2016, if you want to archive it. Yeah, for the uh, Peter Ballard Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's, uh, you know, we're really good. I mean, but I I think about us uh, having really reached out to some people that really even don't even do podcasts. Mm-hmm. Like Matt Lalonde is a guy that refuses to do podcasts because he doesn't want to really deal with people, more questions. Humans. Humans. Uh, <laughs> and uh, people under about 150 IQ, which, mm-hmm. you know, basically lobs all of us out other than my dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, but like, you know, bringing in guys like Matt Lalonde who have such a unique or Rob Wolf or, you know, I mean, we go down. I mean, the other great one, too, and I always laugh about was... Um, the barefoot running guy, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Google, yeah, Google. and they reached out to us, yeah, yeah. So McDougal reached out to us, and we get this email like, oh, you know, we really love to have uh, McDougal on. And I'm like, didn't that the dude that wrote Born to Run, yeah, who was an amazing podcast and somebody that I know we've written down? Like, at some point, we got to go hang out. He was training for that race where he had run with, he had to go race with a goat on his back. Remember mm-hmm. that? And he was training for those goats. <laughs> so there's a there's a race in Mexico where these guys run, um, you know, some exorbitant amount of distance, but they have to transport a goat with them, and so they carry their goat on their shoulders. So this guy is uh, he he's a guy that um, went down to Mexico and wrote that book, uh, running with the uh, Indians that in the Copper Canyon, where these guys basically run hundreds of miles a day, and they play these games with running. And um, he had gone down and lived with them and wrote this book called Born to Run. And yeah, I mean, New York Times bestseller a hundred times over, and really started this idea of you know barefoot running and getting back to nature. So we had him on our podcast, and he was um, you know training for this race where he was you know have to run with these indigenous people with a with a goat on his back. So I mean, super cool guy. But he was another one you know taught that idea of like what is fitness, the ability to be useful, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to you know execute normal tasks, you know, sitting behind a computer and fighting wars with a return and a, and a space bar isn't real fitness. Right. And um, I, that was really impactful for me. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the very first episode featuring me, Denny K, 
and Plattic and the the classic cease and desist <sighs> sent from John Wellborn to like so, our, our two soldiers right. well, who just were trying to help us, let, you know, get you into know the what? podcast. This is game. such bullshit. You know, so what happens is, think them, is uh, <laughs> Luke has his whole deal where you know you it's better to ask for uh, forgiveness. Oh, that's and my deal. That was like actually mine. There's like there's one rule at this company: <laughs> don't ask permission. Just do things and hope it's the right thing. I'm like, okay. So uh, <laughs> Luke Luke gives this idea like, hey, we're thinking of starting a podcast. I'm like it's a fucking terrible idea. It'll never last. It'll never last. Podcasts suck. Nobody it's listens to that shit. It's a fad like pockets in the internet. <laughs> and uh, you know, so that's all I heard. Next thing I know, I get like pinged on fucking Instagram, Twitter, all all these social media deal, you know, the Power Athlete podcast and I'm like, what the fuck? I had this shit trademarked. Mm-hmm. And right about that time, I was in the middle of a bunch of trademark fights with a bunch of uh, dipshit cheerleading academies that were trying to use the word power athlete for their cheer- cheerleading schools. Mm-hmm. And so I'm dealing with these guys. I got like, you know, I'm writing cease and desist like six a week trying to fight these guys so I can personally keep my legal expense down because these lawyers over here are like fucking bleed you dry. So actually when uh, uh, the, the old lo- the, the lawyer that helps us is a buddy of my dad's and I remember hitting him up and uh, being like, dude, there's no way that I can like sustain the amount of money. And he's like, here's what you do. Let's sit down and craft you a letter, create legal, you blast them out. And he goes, if they, if, he goes, if they punk out, great. If they don't, then escalate it. Yeah. He's like, just send the initials. I don't have to do them. Just tap me in when you got to fist fight these guys. And so, um, all of a sudden this thing pops up and I'm like, this is, I'm like, uh, I didn't okay a podcast with these guys. I don't know what this is. So instantly I cease and desist the letter to them. And these guys are like, little do I know it's Luke on the other side of this podcast to, uh, you know, so, so the, the first podcast I didn't even know about, and I ended up sending a cease and desist to get these guys. Wasn't the verbiage in the letter, like not cordial at all. You just went out of your way to say, uh, you're going to stop people and smash them if they don't stop using the power athlete. No, it, it was it was crafted with by an attorney, so attorneys don't use words like that's why I cease and destroy. No, that's no, why I thought I remember it's, that. it's uh, it, it was very you know um, as it always begins. I'm not sure if you're no, but Power Athlete is a federally registered trademark owned by John Wellmore and Power Athlete Incorporated, and whether or not you are aware, the way you're using it is in violation, and therefore puts me into the position of creating of having to take legal action against you for your illegal usage of the of the of the mark. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it begins all the time. And then at which point I go in and I like tap it in, and then I put like I cite it, I show it, screen capture, and give them evidence, and then I cite where you know where I own it, the number, and all that, and then send it out to them. So no, it's it, it wasn't like I will fucking end you. But that is definitely how, how they read it. Well, they, I, you know, that well, they, they read it me because I, mean, and I was at a cert, and everyone, like everyone's freaking out. And I'm like, oh, well, classic misunderstanding. If, if, if you've ever uh, received a letter from an attorney, you guys probably never have ever been on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. But when you receive that letter to the attorney, it's like getting like a letter from the IRS or something. Yeah, where I was going like, oh, God. You know, yeah. that's when you're... Like, or even worse, the California State Franchise oh. Tax Board. Oh. You know, those guys oh. are like the, the mafia. Oh, you, you know what? Like, And, and my, my dad will giggle about this, but, um, you know, dealing with the the California State Franchise Tax Board, we would randomly get like a bill for like three hundred dollars, 
And I would send it to the accountant and she had no idea what it was. And I was like, well, what do we do? She's like, just pay it. I'm like, why? She's like, well, we'll fight it, but you have to pay it. I'm like, why? She's like, uh, we don't even know what it is. She, and it was crazy. I remember like a year later, I'm like, what was that? She's like, I don't know, but you paid it and they went away, right? I'm like, so you just pay the franchise tax board to go away? She's like, nine out of 10 times, it's easier just to pay them to go away. And I'm like, that's such, she's like, they're like the mob. They, they're, they're the worst. So, yeah. Well, you can always sue to recover. Yeah. Small claims. Yeah, the thing. only person I know that has the the time, the effort, and the principle to sue them would be you. And you'd be like, oh, no problem. We'll happen to be in court that day. <laughs> so, yeah. the uh, uh, But, yeah, no, we've... The other cool thing, I mean, Jim Wendler we've had on. I mean, um, I can think back, like we were talking about... Um, uh, my professor, uh, Stephen G. Miller, you know, foremost expert in the world of ancient athletics, which I think was another great podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Callie was uh, like, I don't think people are going to like this one. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. We got to get this guy on, you know, and then, you know, we just did another one with Fred Hatfield. So we've had some pretty amazing guests and some pretty unamazing guests, mm-hmm. you know, that I can think back on, which are usually all the people that text brings on. <laughs> uh, Bert, Bert Swarm, I got him on. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, Conference and connections. It's true. It's true. No, I mean, it's, it's been an incredible task for, or a, a tool for not only networking, but, you know, creating a big uh, infrastructure and what's our uh, genealogy, which is, you know, to quote Hair Bear. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been good. Yeah, but uh, that and then uh, what else has been going on? Just uh, crappy internet here. We're still dealing with uh, with no internet or, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the worst internet. Imagine AOL 1995 dial-up mm-hmm. in Bangladesh. That's yeah. our internet that we have here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, but I thought the internet was just a fad. I mean, was it something that you've come to rely on being running an online business? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is. Uh, I, I had some guy send me some hate mail that like, hey, uh, you know, basically on my Talk to Me Johnny blog, like, what's wrong? You haven't learned anything? Like, like how come you're not putting anything out? I actually emailed him back and I'm like, my internet is so bad that the only way I can load anything without it crashing is I either have to be at a hotspot or I got to go to Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So the other morning I went and loaded Harry like 20, um, I think I loaded him a year of workouts mm-hmm. at, at Starbucks and Harry's like, oh, what does it take so long? I'm like, I cannot physically load or do anything uh, on my computer. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's unreal. So. But it, I mean, go, go for it. Soon to be cured. Yeah. Yeah. Soon, soon to be cured. Well, just saying what else we got is the academy and a freaking manual workbook. Oh. That, it's going to be a collector's item. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this this uh, this podcast really kind of um, you know is really a kickoff here when we're getting ready to launch the uh, the first segment of the Power Athlete Academy, which uh, I think is years overdue. Yes, um, you know, and what, what it's going to do now is going to give people kind of a choose your own adventure opportunity to understand the Power Athlete method, so that when we go out in the, into the world and have in person seminars, we don't have to sit there and uh, start hammering and chiseling on a tablet the Ten Commandments of not only power athlete but the, yeah. really the basis of not only strength conditioning and understanding exactly. performance-based training where you know people ask questions it's kind of like uh, you know we have people uh, you know on the, all the time on the on the, the training you know asking questions like so we got to do this you know like yeah like here's where you start so mm-hmm. I think we've really kind of uh, you know it's really overdue and, and what I'm really excited too and I talked to Andy Stump about this the other day when I was in Washington DC doing the deal for the NFL he called me because uh, he's starting andystump.com hmm. um, you know as I as he started his Confessions of an Idiot, which was his blog, which I called him immediately and said, that's the fucking worst name. Call it your name. And so now he's going to start his deal because he's uh, got involved with some public speaking. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Andy called me and he, 
you know, we've been kind of kicking around this idea, like we had talked about doing the Masters of Violence, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, with the guys from Black Rifle Coffee, which was a kind of a collection of people that were really good at violence and could come in and assess people on their state of readiness for violence. Mm-hmm. Not only to administer, but absorb, to understand and kind of deal with it. But, um, you know, Andy was pretty funny. He said, you know, there are these guys that are teaching a, a seminar where I think they do contrast baths and breathing. And I was like, really? And they charge for that? He's like, yeah, they're thousands of dollars. They they go on these retreats and, uh, you know, you know, got hot and cold. And then they teach breathing and some basic fitness and they're paying big money for it. I'm like, man, I can't believe people pay for anything. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, you know, what if there was some form of like retreat seminar or something that we could do, let's say in Montana, where you bring people in and you do like kind of team building or you put them in like a two day situation where you force them into different tasks. Like here's a map, here's this orienteering, um, you know, hey, I need you to make a you know make a fire here's an axe chop down you know all these different things and then you bring them back and uh, as they're starting to fail you bring in people to teach them the skill and kind of come out yeah, yeah. and so a- Andy was like you know what if uh, we did a seminar that was based on not only you know some basic survival stuff but also some understanding of nature but also you know team building understanding you know training what it looks like and start helping people to uh, you know really start to understand what it takes to not only be you know successful here but successful in other parts yeah. and I was like dude it sounds like a, a great idea um, and you know uh, Andy's actually selling his house and moving to uh, Montana oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're, they're moving to uh, Whitefish whereas his wife grew up in Montana which we've been to Whitefish and yes we have yeah yeah we, we had a family fact, reunion uh, up there that's uh, safety <laughs> had come from Whitefish the one that uh, Timmy Hawk uh, yeah Kenny uh, played for the Eagles. He's he's one yeah. of the coaches for the Eagles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Timmy's coaching for the Eagles. Yeah. Because uh, Ned Ehrlich, who was our workman's comp attorney, was the head guy for the PA. Uh, and he and Timmy were good friends. So, uh, but, you know, like, I, I think people are, you know, whether it's through podcasts or, you know, CrossFit, physical training, you know, this, people are looking for, <clears throat> for a way to improve upon themselves. And like I think the one thing, even though the internet's a fad, what it's offered people is a way to you know start searching and you know seeing not only holes within their own game or maybe miscome or shortcomings, and now how do we start fixing them? Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I was looking at like uh, uh, you know some of the most Google terms out there. One of them is how do I be a better father? Oh yeah. You know, things like that. And, like, you know, I mean, people are asking these questions. And, you know, then how, how are they doing it? Well, like, all these books come up by all these, psycho- you know, psychiatrists or psychologists yeah, yeah. or, you know, some other guy. And, you know, and, and actually one of the most impactful books I ever read was a book called Wild at Heart. And, uh, you know, that book was, you know, really good for me in terms of, like, you know, what it understands to be a father but also a man and some of these other things, which goes back to our angel, you know, talk with Harry Shaw. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think this podcast has been really great. And um, I'm excited to see if we can make it another 200 episodes or if this is just the end of the power athlete radio oh this is our last one this is, this is it <laughs> this bottle of those microphones yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah so if it dies today it's my fault <laughs> <laughs> so no it's been good so uh um yeah well let's get some let's get some bob Walton all right let's hear that so right. give a little background bob i mean you know we yesterday well, you're talking about me personally uh yeah, whatever, family whatever. or whatever well uh give give us a little history on you like okay uh, well, you, let's go back from? uh let's try my name robert alden wellborn well there was a robert alden wellborn who came from england in 1840 and he's settled in the area of uh, southern Illinois, uh, not far from Quincy, between Springfield and 
and uh, Quincy, uh, there's a lot of uh, agriculture, and Quincy was famous for stoves that would be built there up and down the Mississippi, and the uh, women in the uh, the times um, had to have one of those stoves as they moved their way across the prairies. Well, uh, uh, he situated himself there, and uh, and the family grew, and he had brothers uh, who um, settled in other parts of that part of the United States. Some went to Indiana, uh, and then the Civil War came along, and uh, he joined the, um, um, I guess it was the Illinois Volunteers, and uh, he was later killed in, uh, I believe, the Battle of Shiloh by rifle shot. And uh, I have a copy of his death certificate. Um, and uh, my grandfather, who uh, was born in a little town called Barrie, which is not far from Quincy, uh, he uh, was named after his uncle. And uh, my grandfather, taking that name, then um, started, um, you know, lived in that area and went to business college in Quincy. And uh, the, he then married a, a lady from Quincy, and he then went to work for the Santa Fe Railroad, and they moved to Topeka, Kansas, and uh, that was at that time the headquarters of the Santa Fe. And uh, as he uh, worked within the main offices, he then rose to become the head of the passenger service section, and my father was born in Topeka, and he was named Junior. So when my father grew up in Topeka, he um, um, played sports and grew up uh, and went on to college at Baker University, which is um, in a uh, small town in southern Kansas, and um, it's uh, um, largely a Methodist school, John. Uh, that's how it got its start. Gotcha. And it's since expanded uh, uh, immeasurably in the Kansas City area where they have many ancillary organizations, and it's all part of the organization uh, that was originally started in this southern Kansas town. Well, um, my father worked um, after he graduated from school in the oil business, and he got a job working for the National Supply Company, which is an oil field supply uh, organization that uh, their symbol really was the blue they used on the oil pumps and the equipment, and it was called National Blue, so you could tell their product ahead of others. And my father then was transferred to different parts in uh, this western Kansas, southern eastern Kansas, with this job. And I was then conceived and born. Uh, uh, my parents were married in the Topeka area, and then he was transferred to Hutchinson, and that's where I was born. And so he decided uh, to make me Robert Alden Wellborn III. And my brother James Arthur Wellborn was born uh, in Winfield, which is another small town in Kansas where my father was transferred. And then we uh, ended up uh, in towns uh, on the western side of Kansas, El Dorado and Chanute and other cities. And uh, about that time, World War II broke out, and my father, because of his background in chemistry as well as engineering, um, was uh, given a job at uh, Boeing, 
in Wichita, Kansas. And at that time, Boeing was one of the major, as they are today, manufacturers of airplanes. And the B-29 was conceived and built uh, at that time in Wichita. And uh, that that was a, a bomber that was completely designed and built to uh, surpass the B-17, which uh, was the main workhorse of the campaign, mainly in uh, in Europe. But it had been built before World War II, and there were a number of deficiencies in it. So when the B-29 was built, uh, uh, my father was part of that group. In fact, uh, as part of the testing, he was involved in that too. And uh, that uh, took him to journeys out in the South Pacific where he went to Tinian and some other places where the um, super forts were stationed. And uh, then he would come back to Kansas again and was exempted from the military because of that. Meanwhile, I started school in Wichita in the first grade. They didn't have kindergartens in those days. And uh, in the first grade, um, at uh, John Adams was the name of the school. And I started and then um, we uh, were happily in Kansas when World War II ended on uh, uh, August 14, and uh, I was born on the 15th of August, 1937, so I kind of took that as a great birthday present for me, too. And once the war ended, um, uh, you know, the, the war economy was continuing in some extent, and my father was invited to come to work for Douglas Aircraft in Santa Monica in California. And we were happy as a family to make that move. Uh, in the meantime, uh, my mother um, really got us all together. And we ended up taking the train out to um, through the Southwest, an amazing trip uh, to Los Angeles. And we landed and we had relatives out here who had come in the 30s. So they then found us accommodations in the western part of Los Angeles, and I started school in, in the fall at the Palms Elementary School, which was located in a western Los Angeles county, not far from Culver City, if you know that's the independent city in the middle of Los Angeles. And so I did that, and, um, and I was kind of ahead of the game in some ways because um, uh, it seemed like uh, the schools were uh, teaching us things that in the first grade that you didn't learn to the second and third grade in, um, in the Los Angeles schools, which were then laboring under so many students, they had to divide the classes in two, and you either had an A or a B for the third grade, all the way up and even to the time I was in high school. So um, uh, I then, uh, we then, my uncle, uh, who also worked at Douglas, and my father, because of the housing shortage, decided they would build a home in the San Fernando Valley, which um, was over the Santa Monica Pass from where we lived. And uh, they went out to the Walnut Acres, it was called, and um, they did uh, build a place. And uh, it's now called Woodland Hills. Um, and uh, I then continued school out there and they then skipped me a couple of grades uh, or at least uh, semesters uh, and uh, because of that I then came 
we came back to town, as we called it. We considered about in Canoga Park and Woodland Hills being kind of um, in the walnut acres and orange trees and a lot of things out there. It was a really a beautiful area, but uh, we decided we were more citified. So we moved back to the Palms area, and I continued going to junior high, and I went to a school called Hamilton High School, named after Alexander Hamilton. It's located in Los Angeles, and uh, it uh, is a school that kind of academically oriented, at least. Uh, uh, we did, uh, uh, we're proud of the fact that uh, uh, I would think at least uh, probably 60% of the kids that graduated, maybe as much as two-thirds, would go on to college. And many of them went uh, directly to college. We had a, a um, couple of junior colleges not far away. Some kids went there, and some in USC is not far away either. And UCLA is practically within bicycle distance, and that, of course, was a popular school too. So I went on to, um, uh, and then they, we had the state colleges as well, and I went on to uh, go to the state college at, uh, in Los Angeles called California State University in Los Angeles. And after that, I had, had UC a long East LA, isn't it UCU? It, it's in East Los Angeles. Yeah, it's out near uh, Alhambra, also out by Monterey Park in that area. So I used to have to drive back and forth, and that was a um, um, really the freeways were just beginning at that time. So most of it was done on just regular roads. And um, I then um, uh, only, ironically enough, applied to one school to go to law school, was USC. And I later found out that most people had applied to at least five, sometimes ten, because you don't usually get your first choice. But I was lucky that I did. So in 1959, I started at uh, the University of California School of Law. But I was lucky when I graduated in the summer, uh, well, it would have been in June, that uh, I was given an opportunity to uh, take a fellowship and a, uh, to go to the Institute of World Affairs, it was called, in Canaan, Connecticut, which is a city uh, in, um, well, a small town really in northwest Connecticut. And uh, it's a school that um, is just given in the summertime and would bring together 43 students from 23 different countries, many of them on Fulbright scholarships from all these different places. And uh, some of us were from California. There were some people from the University of California all up and down the state as well as all parts of the uh, of the academic group that came together. And Arthur Smithies was the name of the director, and he was held the rope chair of political economics at Harvard. And uh, he would uh, uh, then bring guests to us on Saturdays, ambassadors from different countries, uh, many Harvardian and Yale scholars. Um, it was just a great opportunity to really study under some very interesting people. And uh, it meant that uh, I would be gone, and I was gone from uh, the end of June until into August. And there were two students that I met there that um, one of them was a, a girl who came from Germany and a boy who later became the, um, my, 
believe um, the Secretary of State, maybe for Austria, uh, at one time he was in New York City as their Council General, and uh, they had wanted to go across the United States but didn't, uh, couldn't afford it. Well, I had had a stipend for transportation and I made my first jet aircraft flight from Los Angeles to New York and landed um, at uh, Idlewild, it was called in those days. So I then took the money that I was going to use to go back to Los Angeles and I found a man that had a Mercedes that he had imported to the United States, but it landed in New York. So uh, I had to get it registered because he would let me drive it back to California. (laughs) And the hard part was getting it registered in his name and getting insurance because at that time New York had the policy that California does that you had to have insurance in order to get the car registered and uh, we at that time in California allowed you to register the car and if you had insurance that was good if you didn't uh, there was no penalty unless you got an accident and then you were penalized <laughs> so uh, I, I then learned a little about the bureaucracy of the New York State uh, Department of the um, motor vehicles because I went up and down uh, many stairways from one insurance company to another. I was in a hurry uh, in in Manhattan and sometimes you can get even locked out if you don't hit the right level. Uh, So I got the insurance and piled these two young people into the car with me and it was a 220 sedan that was a standard transmission. It was really a nice car. So we started out and we drove all the way across California, up to California, uh, um, using for the most part um, the uh, the new interstate highway system that was still being completed all the way across the United States. And uh, at that time, um, uh, Eisenhower, who had instituted the program uh, along with the highway lobby, you might say, um, uh, was in full force. And uh, and we stayed at YMCA's um, as we came across, or the YW for the girl, uh, in Chicago, also in Denver. and uh, But when we got to Las Vegas, we decided we'd splurge and go out to a club or something. Ooh, Vegas, huh? Yeah, even Las Vegas. We And funny enough, we saw the Grand Canyon, but from the north side, which is really an interesting um, trip because it's of course closer to Las Vegas but it's a hundred miles from where the road runs all the way to the canyon and the north side of the canyon has some wonderful facilities that have been built by the Santa Fe Railroad interestingly enough uh, along their track as it ran into Los Angeles so we came back I dropped them off at um, I guess it was UCLA where they had friends and others and then I returned the car to the man in Glendale that owned it and I got a ride home and I was ready to start law school within the next uh, couple of weeks. So in law school I found that there were a lot of subjects that were very, very interesting and uh, a great time and I was elected president of the first year class which 
uh, really doesn't mean much, but <laughs> I joined the Phi Alpha Delta Law Fraternity, which uh, is an interesting group. Uh, um, it's not a fraternity like you have in undergrad. Uh, they don't have a house and they don't have living quarters, but it's Where a professional throw, group. Where'd you throw the lawyer parties? Uh, is it like yeah, animals? well, that's true. They the would bars. have some entertainment. And uh, <laughs> ironically enough, my uh, middle son, Edward, he joined Phi Alpha Delta unbeknownst to me when he went to law school in San Diego, but they have chapters all over the United States and uh, and they uh, in some cases are uh, more active than others. Isn't there a legal precedence? Isn't there like a isn't there a court order that Bo's not allowed to be anywhere within 100 foot of a fraternity? I think they just, the fraternities are just scared of what would happen, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, these fraternities are... Uh, uh, you know, you join them in law school and you get a plaque and it's signed and you put it on the wall kind of a thing. But I still retain a, a, an alumni membership in it and uh, they're always sending me stuff that I'm not really terribly interested in. But, you know, they send me letters and notices and all this kind of thing. So um, then after I, um, uh, in my latter part of my um, law school, uh, I got a job working as a counselor at Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles, which wasn't too far from the uh, university, uh, which is in roughly downtown Los Angeles. And uh, I started working there from 2 in the afternoon till 10 at night, uh, which was an interesting experience because the kids we dealt with were the major delinquents yeah. for Los Angeles. Was it, uh, one of, what, was it Mookie Williams, one of your guys? <laughs> yeah. Well, Mookie was, uh, he wasn't called Mookie at the time, yeah. but yeah, he was there. And I had all, uh, by, at so that time. So those of you guys listening, you guys can do a yeah, Google search for Mookie Williams. Yeah, he was one of the Yeah, he was the, uh, yeah, the, the, the guy whose credit was start, was starting to We didn't the, the uh, really, uh, uh, did have the gang problems. The Mexicans have had gangs, Mexican-American gangs for a long, long time going back to the 20s and the 30s like that was like a, what's the big one uh, like the white fence well the white fence was an early gang and that was kind of from downtown and sort of in the area they called it diamond two which would be off of Temple. And, and every time I make the left turn off of uh, uh, on Anaheim, I get to see the uh, Wemos. <laughs> get to see Wemos. Well, Wemos is a abbreviation for Wilmington. Yeah. And they got East Longos and West Longos. And it's awful hard to figure them out sometimes, but uh, uh, they've got their territories. And then suddenly in South LA, it started emerging uh, uh, the Pyrus, which were the Bloods, and then uh, the others were the Crips. And the Crips had their little females that followed them around, and they called themselves the Cripettes, <laughs> which was funny. And even more funny uh, uh, is um, uh, is the name Crip. Uh, they decided, I guess, along the way that they wanted to have a name that was really scary. So what's more scary than when you go to the cemetery, you see a crypt, but they spelled it wrong. <laughs> they, they, they forgot the Y, C-R-Y-P-T. Well, they spelled C-R-I-P. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's that's how it was sounded uh, 
<laughs> so they spelled it phonetically then. Phonetically, yeah, yeah. And so, whatever. So it's C R I P S, and they write it everywhere. And then it became more violent. You know, it don't. It became when, that way. But when did the violence start? I mean, because you, you know, like you grew up in Culver City. I mean, uh, I, I remember. Was it um, Judge Shook? Grew, uh, he, he went to high school in Compton. No, he went to high school in Southwest LA, uh, off of Vermont and but, Western. But I mean, these were white middle class neighborhoods. Well, they were, or yeah, white middle class, uh, uh, or in many times uh, upper middle class and lower middle class. But uh, they were all most of the homes, at least where I lived, had been built, uh, you know, in the 30s and uh, into the 40s and later because of um, you know housing shortage. It, they put a lot of tracks in and that brought people but uh, uh, I don't know it, it was just a phenomenon uh, of the area and also a lot of guys that seemed to be at loose ends without any direction they didn't have anybody giving them the kind of direction they needed within the school within the home in the home especially and they started gathering and finding their associations and their lack of stability with the, the gang and the gang then became more important than their own family in many ways and, uh, and then we'll, one guy that we're talking about judge shook a friend of mine he's a, was a retired superior court judge uh, he went to a school that uh, was a catholic school um, down in uh, that area and at that time it was a nice area he used to go to the catholic church and was an altar boy and all that stuff well, the schools closed, and <laughs> in fact, the McKeever brothers went there too. If you remember them, they were a couple of football stars uh, at USC and also in the NFL. And uh, uh, that school, they've got many alumni, but everybody else is uh, is gone, and nobody. Well, I can't say nobody, but very few Caucasian white people live in that neighborhood anymore. And then pretty soon uh, uh, we come along, and uh, by 1964, 65, I become a deputy district attorney uh, in uh, L.A. County. And uh, I had started in, in June, and uh, the Watch Riots, maybe you remember them, yep. broke out in 1965. Uh, in August, so I was kind of a new guy on the job, but uh, I was trying to case over in El Monte, which is a town out more towards the San Gabriel Valley. In fact, its claim to fame was it was the last stop on the Santa Fe Trail. As they would bring the herds west, they would pin them up in El Monte, and the buyers would come out from L.A. and then buy the cattle in El Monte, but El Monte meaning the mountain. The mountain. So uh, I'm looking down towards South L.A., and a friend of mine who's the head of the office comes out and said, look at that fire, Bob. There's some bad shit going on down there. And I said, what is it? He said, well, they're burning up stuff. So I said, oh, boy. Well, I then called in, and they to find out what I was, where I was be assigned on Monday. And uh, I was told I was going to Compton, which is right in the middle of all of this. <laughs> I said, how do I get through the police and uh, uh, the lines that are going to be there? Because I had learned on Friday late that the uh, lieutenant governor at that time, who was 
standing in for Pat Brown, who was the governor, had called out the National Guard. Oh, no. So the National Guard is there because the police, LAPD, weren't handling it, and the sheriff was involved, too. So I ended up having to show my badge as I went through the police lines. And uh, I rode the freeway down and then came through, and some DAs were carrying guns. I didn't have one, so I didn't, I didn't have John then, so I... <laughs> 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 they weren't easily accessible. My father had a shotgun, I think, or two, but that was it. He... So I then was involved in the prosecution of a lot of people that were being hauled in. In, in Compton, we had a court with, uh, I think there were three divisions at that time, it was a municipal court, and uh, one of the judges who uh, uh, decided that this thing was getting out of hand, the poor people that had pled guilty a month before and were coming in for sentencing were now being sentenced in accordance with all the turmoil and problems that were going on. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't when they pled out, they didn't realize they were going to get a year in the county jail for something that ordinarily would have been 30 days. But, you know, the judges said, well, we got to set a standard here and not let these guys get by with anything. So that was my introduction to um, uh, the DA's office, and I then was transferred to other places. And one of the places I ended up, uh, where I stayed for uh, almost a year, more than a year really, was in Redondo Beach, which is in the southern part of Santa Monica Bay. And Redondo Beach um, uh, had this uh, two divisions of the municipal court and then one division in Torrance, which is nearby. And they handled all the cases from, let's say, north of Wilmington in Harbor City and then over to what's termed Lomita, which starts in um, uh, Western. And then it continues all the way up, and we add them to Manhattan Beach, and then all the Palos Verdes Peninsula, Torrance, which was the biggest city in Gardena. So it was a large area that we were responsible for. And I got a lot of experience and a variety of things, and there were some good judges there that taught me a lot about the law. So uh, I was later transferred downtown where I was involved in the preliminary hearings and the prosecutions downtown and that side of thing. But in the meantime, uh, my second year of law school, I'd met a man who was the lobbyist for the motion picture producers of California Motor Car Dealers in Sacramento. And uh, also he um, handled other matters too. So he had befriended me at a party for the Phi Alpha Delta Law Fraternity. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it all worked. And I went to the backyard of a federal judge in an area called Hancock Park, which is an area of Los Angeles that uh, uh, old Los Angeles that had big homes and you know, stuff was right there. So, at any rate, uh, he was introduced to me to introduce me around because I was a young guy that didn't know a lot of people and he knew them all. So I then, uh, he invited me to go to lunch and I did later and he said, well, when you get ready to decide what you want to do when you're a lawyer, give me a call and we'll talk about it. So I, I did that, and uh, he then had told me uh, that, uh, you know, he thought it would be a good idea if I got some trial experience. And one of the ways to get trial experience is getting the DA's office. So he put a good word in with our then district attorney, um, Evel Younger, and uh, I 
then moved into that job. And uh, so I then decided after, oh, a little over two years in the DA's, DA's office, that I would uh, become a lobbyist. I wanted to get into that area in Sacramento. And I uh, took on a, a lobbying for the Automobile Association of Southern California, which is the AAA affiliate for and all of the legislation they're involved in having to do with the roads, the highways, the, um, all the codification of the highway code and, of course, the motor vehicle code and changes that take place. And you'd work with the highway patrol and you'd work with a lot of variety of people. In fact, there's more than you would imagine involved in that because even the aggregate people, the ones who... <laughs> supply the stone for the roads and the asphalt people and the contractors and they've all got these organizations which are um, their own particular point of view to get the legislators to think about it well that was right at the beginning of Reagan's time in office mm -hmm. so um, I married John's mother uh, in uh, 1966 uh, and uh, and we went to Sacramento um, in that year, and uh, we went to the uh, inauguration of, Ray, uh, of Reagan's uh, party at the fairgrounds in Sacramento. So we had a great time getting to meet people, and um, part of the job was to get to know these people better. And uh, Doris um, is a good one to get along with people quickly. And so she did. They had a group of women that had an organization, and she became a member, and that helped us get together and do things better. But we were then commuting between Sacramento and Los Angeles, getting an apartment down in L.A. and moving back and forth and back and forth, which really wasn't what I wanted to do, because along with Reagan, they had passed new legislation that made lobbyists full-time rather than part-time legislators as they had been before. Jess Unra, the then Speaker of the Assembly, who was really a powerful politician, got that through. So we ended up then being told that it'd be better if you live in Sacramento full-time. And that wasn't, we didn't really want to do that. So we had bought a home in Palos Verdes Estates through a friend of mine from law school who had called and told me about it. And uh, so... Ironically, you still live there today? Yeah. Uh -huh. Who, the you? Yeah. Yeah, no, they bought their home in what, 66? We bought it in 1967. Yeah. In fact, November this year will have been there 50 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who would you pay it off in uh, 1982? <laughs> <laughs> I, I paid it off when I got the bank case in 1990. <laughs> uh, One of the... Lawyers jump from case to case, you know, as the finances of it work out. But whatever, uh, we then decided we wanted to stay there, and it was a house that needed to be painted and fixed up. It had, we were only the second owners, and uh, it had a swimming pool in the back, and uh, it's a lovely area to live in. It's got a third of the city is set aside as... Parkland is called, which oh. means it's open space, a little like John's place, you know. Okay. You can't build on it. We've got CCNRs running with the land that prevents you from building a house that doesn't conform to certain restrictions. 
they have an art jury to decide whether the house itself and the architect that you've hired and what he wants to do is going to blend in with the neighborhood. We've got a neighborhood compatibility ordinance which talks about you can't have a two-story where there aren't any others. And, you know, and, and you can't just encroach on, on you know, that parkland that's song for song. And of course, the setback too is nice because you don't live right next to your neighbor, like often happens in place. Newport Beach. Yeah, Newport Beach. Yeah. That, you know, they uh, always appreciate the uh, the setbacks of homes. Yeah. Because you know, it, it, it kind of gives you an idea. Now all of a sudden, these people get rid of the setback and they build it to the street. And you drive down the neighborhood and you see setback, and you're like, ah, that killed me about Newport. Yeah, yeah. You used to talk about that when you were down there, and that's so true of so many cities. You know, that's valuable land. And I'm thinking back to my old high school Hamilton I saw a picture the other day that I ran across in a newspaper clipping when the front of Hamilton had a beautiful grass lawn and you drive by on Robertson Boulevard and see this because it's a big brick building two stories and a cop on top what have you seen it have you seen recently yeah it's all fenced but all the grass is gone and it's all fenced and it's all parking lot yeah, yeah. all parking lot for people to park on and you drive by and yeah, you barely a, see the beautiful structure yeah. and they have of course a big fence and a bunch of stuff but uh so in Palisades estates uh, uh, that uh, is something that people have wanted to treasure and and make uh, an effort to continue over the year and it has and the city was incorporated in 1939 with its own police and fire as an and it's affected charter city although it's a general law but it, that's what usually comes with them uh, and so uh, we've maintained that uh, over the years and in 1974 uh, after my son Rob Alden the fourth was born, John's oldest brother, and then Ed, Thomas Edward, who was born about two years 72. later. Yeah, 72. Yeah, he uh, uh, was, uh, uh, I then ran for city council in 1974, and I was elected for two terms of four years each. And uh, I then became the mayor of the city and that kind of stuff. And John was born in 1976, and uh, uh, had the benefit, I guess, of going to the Palos Verdes Estates of Palos Verdes Peninsula School District, which is one of the best in the state of California, and they're all very proud of that because um, that keeps the property values up, and <laughs> the students that go there are often tutored in <laughs> many different uh, ways, and uh, and they're even uh, and well, and once again, because of the neighborhood, and I think the pressure brought by the parents and bringing the academic standards up, uh, most every one of the kids goes on to college mm -hmm. you know, or university. <clears throat> and uh, my uh, two older boys, uh, Rob and Ed, went to uh, the Claremont Colleges, which are located out kind of in western L.A. County, uh, not far from uh, Pomona and the city of Claremont is where they're located. And uh, the uh, oldest one of those schools, Pomona, was founded before USC was started in about, I don't know, 1883 or something like that. And USC was 1885. So that college atmosphere 
um, out in that area has perpetuated itself and they've added other schools and it's kind of organized on the Oxford approach where you can go to college in each one of the colleges and graduate from the one that uh, you first enroll in. And so they also played athletics out there, and uh, they had also been on the football team at Palos Verdes High School. And both Ed and uh, Rob played on that team, and we'd bring John out with us uh, to go to games and visit. And they took uh, John out to parties when he was <laughs> only 14 or 15 years old. And one day we're sitting uh, at a, I think it was having lunch, and he, and he drank a yard of beer. That really shocked us. <laughs> His brothers have been teaching him. A little glint of uh, pride in your eye, huh? <laughs> What am I getting here? So, John uh, uh, was very good at high school football and, um, you know, All-American and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, we were proud of that. And uh, his brothers, I think, did a lot, tried to help him learn how to be a good lineman. And uh, then uh, we would travel to different places where he would get invited for a visit and we went to Colorado and we didn't go to the one in Nebraska but we uh, certainly were following it and uh, and down to USC and then UCLA and what was the other Berkeley. one? Uh, Berkeley of course and uh, went up there and he decided kind of as a surprise to me to go to Berkeley uh, uh, with the team so that's where and then we used to get, have a great fun as a family to travel to these places and watch football games and travel to different parts of the United States. To, uh, we're like groupies, you might say, to go to these things and have a good time. So at any rate, I've been a lawyer now for over 50 years and got a certificate from the state of California signed by the president of the State Bar of California and also the Chief Justice. Uh, acknowledging my 50 years of unblemished uh, practice. <laughs> so I'm well working on my second 50, and uh, <laughs> I'm still practicing. I have cases. In fact, when I go back today, I'm starting, uh, I'll have a um, um, day after tomorrow, an appearance where we're going to decide and probably put together a lot that we're going to use in a jury trial involving uh, a robbery case. Uh, uh, originally it was also a kidnapping, but through a legal mechanism we got that dismissed. So I've finished another kidnapping case in, um, I guess it was the end of January, and uh, I handle, for the most part these days, uh, criminal cases. I've tried murder cases, special circumstance cases, all of them over the years. I, I don't, uh, and I take appointments from the courts. Uh, we have a, an organization that's been for the county of Los Angeles where, where there's conflicts between the public defender and, um, let's say, you got three defendants and you can't have 
the same agency representing them, so the public defender is one, and then they've created an alternate public defender, separate and apart, to handle the second one, but then they have to get a private lawyer who is paid by the county to handle the third one. Or it can be five. Sometimes you get a gang case and it can be ten different, and then the public defender, alternate PD, and then eight private lawyers. So uh, they don't pay you real well to do it, but it's county work and you to do that. And it's it's interesting. And you get to see a lot of your old friends when you go down and and you see judges and people that you know and like. It's probably more cost effective too because uh, yeah. you know, public defenders, I mean, you guys actually bring in seasoned attorneys as part of those guys. Well, know, that's true. And it moves faster. And then another thing, they don't have to worry about so much overhead. You know, the cost of these county businesses, uh, they don't have to pay rent for me. They don't have to pay my malpractice insurance. They don't have to pay all of the things they have to, the indirects, you know, for no retirement and, uh, you know, uh, health and welfare and all the other things. So it's worked out over the years. It used to be they didn't have an alternate public defender and just used lawyers in that capacity. But uh, uh, some bright guy figured it out that they'd rather have the control of the lawyers by having an alternate agency to handle many of the conflicts. But that's just uh, where it is in a nutshell. And um, now all of my, my oldest son, Robert IV, uh, he's recently, within the last couple of years, had a son, and he's Robert V now. So I'll be around for a little while, and he has another boy named Nicholas. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, in between, John had the twins, and now he's got a year old cash. And then Ed, who has the oldest grandchildren, which are uh, Luke. You know Luke. Yes, sir. And you, you know Alex, too. Yeah. And uh, they're uh, good kids. And Luke is a good baseball player and likes all kinds of sports. And so does Alex. She's now learned to ride a horse. And she's got the all-star team in basketball. And they're all, everybody is really athletically oriented, which is a happy time because they've got a lot to do with themselves. And um, every both of those kids are really exceptional students. Yeah, just, smart. Yeah, Luke's, they uh, really are. Yeah, Luke, Luke Sharp. Dad, you, you have an interesting perspective having grown up in, you know, obviously come from the Midwest. I mean, you, you moved out, uh, what, in, when you were five years old? No, I would have been eight. So, so eight years old. So, I mean, for roughly, we're coming up on 72 years of living in Los Angeles. Yeah. Probably within 40 miles, 50 mile really distance. I mean, Culver City to, you know, Palos Verdes. I mean, really within that. Palms is right across from Culver City, too. I mean, but even, you know. Even in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah, Woodland Hills. But, I mean, to see the difference in L.A. opposed from when you were, you know, probably heading down to Venice to go sell, you know, (laughs) combs with your buddy at Venice Beach or, uh, you know, uh, know, taking your three-hour drive drive down to Huntington Beach, I mean, to see L.A. and see how much it's grown and changed over the course of these years. Yeah, it's just been an amazing transformation. Of course, the freeways had a lot to do with that because it was now connecting distant communities, and of course, by putting them in, uh, they had to take away a lot of houses that were in the way. So those houses would be removed and were sold and then they were moved to different parts of Los Angeles. In fact, my old YMCA in Culver City was one of those houses they took off the freeway, the Hollywood freeway, when it was put through. But that allowed people to move quickly, or faster than they ever did before, 
but it also uh, permitted the developers to build a lot of towns, just like around here, where you see as you drive out 290 and 71, up on the hillside, there's all these homes that are reachable now where they weren't before, mm -hmm. except in Los Angeles, as you probably know, you'd, <laughs> you'd end up with a, a freeway instead of a four-lane highway, right. uh, you know, just, and there are freeways in Austin too, but, but I mean, it's, not it's, quite as big. It's like, at least in LA, they had the foresight a little bit to realize that, hey, it was going to grow this much, whereas people out here, you know, they talk about traffic, and I'm like, the only reason you guys have traffic is because this is a two-lane road. In LA, they'd have seven lanes on either side, and they would never uh, have any traffic. True. In fact, they even realized that the original freeways aren't wide enough, and the five as it went from Orange County. Orange County developed later than L.A., and they were forward enough in their thinking to really make some wide freeways. <clears throat> but between Orange County line and the 705, which would be the Long Beach Freeway. 710. And the, the seven, what, 710, and then the, what's the other one? The uh, 705. Yeah, 305. Uh, six, 605. 605, right. Roughly 605 through Norwalk. They've just redirected the traffic, and they've just shot those, you know, freeway boundaries out and in. You know, and they've just they talked about setbacks, and some of these buildings there aren't anymore. But it creates the way to do it, and they've often talked about double-decking them too, mm -hmm. which would be a way that they, and in some cases they have, as you are on the Harbor Freeway, uh, yeah. which is the 110, heading downtown, you get to a point where well, we watched them build that. You remember we watched them build that for that's right years. I mean, we it took a long time. I mean, uh, like we we always laughed at uh, in in Orange County in L.A. I mean, I can remember the freeways being under construction when I was a little kid, and then all of a sudden, you know, here I am, forty years, you know, like living there my entire life, and all uh -huh. of a sudden seeing it open and being like, they've been working on this thing for like forty years. <laughs> I mean, just these projects, but it, it's just yeah. I mean, the L.A. traffic is one, but if. Um, and that's part of what we're talking about, too, um, in terms of the influx of people. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, the early aerospace industry was centered right within yeah. uh, the airport around uh, uh, L.A. County uh, as you head south to, um, well, Long Beach Airport and south. My dad was a process engineer, and when he was assigned to work on a space program, they sent him down to... Huntington Beach, where they had a big facility. So it they was decentralized. They still have that big facility in Huntington. They do. Uh, yeah. well, um, question which I think is interesting. So uh, obviously, as a young DA, you know, you saw probably, you know, not only you know uh, shootings, robberies. I mean, all the different stuff. And then you all of a sudden go through this whole deal where all of a sudden the gangs get bigger, crack cocaine, and the drugs hit. Um, you know, and then we come out with Richard Nixon's war on drugs. Right. Um, how like how did those pieces of the puzzle, you know, where all of a sudden it went from a slap on the wrist with these drugs to all of a sudden making these major felonies, how did that really change in terms of the court system and, and who you represented and who you well, saw? Well, it, it, of course, as the government found that they weren't able to use a lot of the tools that they'd had before, um, and, uh, and then when the gangs got involved, it became a way of making money to do the thing. And, uh, you know, in the gangs in the prisons, uh, the bad actors that, that are sent to, um, <clears throat> you know, the prisons and the 
and then when the Mexican Mafia became such an organization that would then traffic on the outside and control what went out on the inside and then call in the shots from inside, the government had to do something to try to keep that from getting beyond where it could be controlled. Roy's playing catch-up in a way. And uh, and then as, uh, you know, the, the cartels down in Colombia and others were shipping the drugs north, and it just wasn't Southern Cal. It was all the west side, east side of the country. And, you know, it was just an inundation of what was going on. And, uh, you know, some of the reaction was overreaction. The federal government started giving more time, prison sentences to to uh, crack. And uh, if you got powdered, you didn't get as much. You know, what's the difference? It's crazy. Right, well, right. I mean, is, is that a racially motivated? They realized that the powder was probably the, you know, the uh, the, the white guy snorting cocaine opposed from the... Well, the it's been said, but I don't really believe that that was what it was about. They felt that, uh, that the crack was more dangerous. Uh, that was the theory. And uh, it was uh, easy, more, more concentrated and uh, that kind of thing. I believe that was it. But it turned out that, of course, uh, a lot of the blacks would uh, get caught with it and be sentenced. In fact, uh, uh, there were, what Obama had a program where he was looking at what these uh, overzealous sentences and was saying, wait a minute, let's change this around. But, did, did you see a, a rapid change in violence? When all of a sudden, uh, well, that's yeah, that was true. There was uh, more violence because they were talking about big money, and then at the same time, there were certain expressions of anti-social, anti-establishment. You know, that's what the rappers were about in many ways. Growing up down in in Compton, for instance, and you had what's his Tupac, remember Tupac? Tupac yeah, Tupac, yeah. And that guy, and then they became rivals, you know. And well, he was killed by a rival, but you know there, there was all of that happening too. And uh, one of the way to get out of the ghetto was to become a rapper and make money. There were guys making dough, and now we've got uh, you know a pending murder case down there. Oh, with your uh, with your boy, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, the guy, uh, uh, Suge Knight. Yeah. Yeah, he's an old pirate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Suge Knight, who was uh, de- uh, Death Row Records and all that. That's and, right. That yeah. came right out of Compton. Well, well, they they were filming that movie straight out of Compton, which mm-hmm. was the, you know, the history of uh, NWA, and he, he, he went down, well, he was mad that he wasn't being represented well, so he went down there with a gun, and, you know, they got him on that, so I mean, he's probably... And then he, and he ran over. A guy yeah. got pissed off in an argument, and he yeah. took his pickup truck and ran over a guy. He got caught on video, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he, and he, 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 he had a hell of a deal, too. You know, Easy e was the main player in there. He died of AIDS. And then they had, uh, you know, Suge Knight talking on, on, uh, on tape, and I, th- I think it might have even been on TV, talking about, uh, you know, how he, you know, get, how they get rid of people, that they uh, put, uh, you know, AIDS tainted blood in a hypodermic needle and send somebody in just to prick him. Sure. And so, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, all of a sudden, which is, you know, standard deal they do in, uh, in prison, they'll find a guy with AIDS and then they, you know, put it to your neck and, hey, you do this or I'm going to shoot you with the AIDS. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, that's, but, I mean, I, I just, 
it's it's pretty interesting if you look at the history of it and you you know having been there and seen kind of this evolution and like you know and also in the court system to see it i mean i remember one time we had a conversation you were like man it was like a black plague or like a black cloud hit la when all of a sudden that stuff i mean the gang violence yeah i mean because they, they even show it in movies like uh what was the movie um uh the real famous one with uh um, Ice Ice Tea was in it, but it's like the uh, not colors, but well, I mean colors is another one. But it really like shows these kind of nice neighborhoods, and all of a sudden, you know, ten mm-hmm. years later, it seemed like all of a sudden that stuff hit. Yeah, and some of those guys have gone legit. <laughs> they, they've tried, but another thing that happened was uh, there were people evolving out of the neighborhood that decided they would try to intervene in gang intervention, and many of them were former gang members that either got married and decided, uh, you know, moved out of the area, it's the only way we could quit the gang really. And they would come down and there would be gang truces and things like that, which were being fostered by intelligent people that decided we've got to do more than we've got to have an outreach program. And then part of the outreach would come from the federal government too and others, they would say, let's start giving more aid. and. Uh, and programs and um, and things that were going to help. And sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. But then we had a second riot in L.A., and that was in 1992, if you remember, and that's mm-hmm. more recent. Uh, and uh, that largely started... Uh, for, after the guys were acquitted over in uh, Simi Valley, after right. the and meeting had, Rodney King? You know, Rodney King. And Rodney King was, uh, as you probably remember, an ex-con who got pulled over up in the San Fernando Valley and wasn't cooperating, so the officers are beating on him, and it was in tape by a bystander who got it, you know, um, I don't know, was it... Uh, uh, well, I, did we have uh, it was a video uh, video uh, it was video, camera. Re- video clip something like yeah it, it was a video camera so yeah uh, I remember that but I just remembered how he how it got out there well uh, the lady film or the person filmed like I think it was a lady filmed it and she gave it to uh, mailed it to the uh, uh, news network that much and then the news, news put channel. it on and then there was a big then trial just viral and then they they felt that the cops couldn't get an honest trial so they sent him out to Simi Valley which at which point they were acquitted and when they came out they were acquitted well then they before that happened though there was a big, big pressure trial. about the problems of LAPD and mistreatment of blacks and and uh, you, you know and Rodney King and his lackluster life, but uh, he gathered together a lot of people in South Central who were pissed off, and some of them rightfully so, about being mistreated when they're under arrest and that kind of thing. So they then decided they would send the trial of uh, these officers out of the county because they felt (coughs) they couldn't get a fair trial within L.A. County. They sent it to Ventura, uh, and Ventura County is just north of L.A., uh, and it has two main cities, Oxnard and, and Ventura. And they held the, um, and they sent a judge from LA County to be the judge at this new location, who was a former public defender, a guy named Bird. And one of the big mistakes he made was releasing the jury verdict at the end of the day. He should have kept it till the following morning then it would have not had the impact that it did, but whatever. So they went up there and this um, jury was, you know, for the most part, 
white retirees. White people and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, six-year-old white weddings. retirees. And so, and they didn't have any investment in what had happened down in L.A. So, all of a sudden, they came back not guilty, and uh, everything blew up. Yeah. <clears throat> and then the people that lived down there uh, were riding. There was one thing at, at Normandy in Florence, if you Yeah, with uh, Reginald Day. There was a guy named Reginald who was driving his tanker down there, and he, he didn't stopped. take a view to it. Well, there were people in the streets riding, and yeah. he stopped. He stopped. Instead of doing what he should have done, which is put your foot on the skiddy panel and keep going and just run them over. I mean, he was in a he, yeah. he, he was a, a, a trucker. Uh, a he saw trucker. the people, and he stopped. And what's going on? And they pulled him out. And, they pulled him out and beat uh, the oh, crap shit. out of him. They hit him in the back of the head with a brick, and he oh, lost his eye. Permanent injury. Um, and, and then, you know, and then the police were, not, you know, trying to quell the riot and all this kind of stuff. So uh, that ended up, um, uh, you know, really inflaming it more. And then down in in L.A., uh, as often happens, a minority group will come to town and find that they want to get involved in businesses. And they had a large influx of Korean people, and they opened businesses down in South Central offering groceries and tobacco products and yeah, uh, kind of little places where they were and many times uh, they were opening them up you know for the convenience of the people in the neighborhood but and they weren't all liquor stores either because there were a lot of liquor stores in South Central but they used to sell cigarettes a lot of the guys down there couldn't afford to buy a pack but they used to get them for like a quarter or maybe half a dollar. Well, the Korean merchants soon learned that they could almost get more than the cigarettes were worth. So they started charging them a dollar a cigarette. Well, people were so pissed off about that. And they were just livid about it. And the outlet of their frustration and and um, problems that they were seeking, they would, during this riot, burned out all of these Korean businesses, huh. except wow. a few of them that would give credit. <laughs> and if they had the brains to give some credit to these guys, they, they said, he's okay. But there were, you know, I don't know how many, a hundred of them that were burned out. And that same thing happened in, you know, almost 30 years before, when you had a lot of businesses, furniture stores down there that were credit stores, and a lot of people had come down there and, and opened these up. And over the years, they weren't giving the kind of service that they would have received otherwise, and, you know, they just took on those stores as well. So um, it was hard to get businesses to go back down and open, and they finally did some routes and others. And it also led to a big upheaval in the LAPD, uh, mm -hmm. where the chief um, ended up being, well, early retired, and they brought in <laughs> Willie Williams. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, and they brought in of, what, what was the name of the uh, the guy, the the white guy, the the police chief? Well, he had been formerly the police chief of Boston. What was his name? And he also in New York. Well, what was his name? Uh, well, he's back in New York now. I can't remember his name. He was. Um, I'll think of it. Yeah, it'll come to me in a second. But uh, uh, but he brought in community-based policing. The idea that uh, you can't just drive around the neighborhood in a police car with the guy sitting next to you. you got to get out of the car and yeah. get to know the people that you're working with. And they he started this whole new thing. And he was brought in by uh, a mayor who... Uh, 
Tom Bradley. No, Bradley. Bradley hired Williams. Oh. And Williams was a complete failure. But yeah. and they got rid of Williams, and then it was Hahn. Yeah, Kenny Hahn. Yeah, that James Hahn. Yeah. And and he found. He's. I think he has an Irish name. Yeah, it, it'll come to me in a uh, second. But he had, uh, and he still speaks with the Boston accent. And he's been involved in a lot of uh, stuff, and he's back in New York. He'd been the commissioner of police there, uh, and he got edged out by uh, the mayor, the Italian guy who was the buddy of Trump. So, uh, hey, uh, speaking of which, remember we had a conversation when this whole Trump thing was going on. You talked about your uh, involvement with Richard Nixon and the uh, silent oh, majority <laughs> in nineteen sixty-eight and seventy-two. So yeah, yeah you uh, you were working as the, you told me the chair for the L.A. chapter of the Republican convention or the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, you see, uh, I was involved in George Murphy's campaign for U.S. Senator. He was running for re-election in 70, and that's when I met George St. John and all these other people who were involved in that California Republic. And this one man had been Nixon's old partner when he was out of office, when he lost the 60 election, and when he ran in 62 for governor and lost to Pat Brown. Uh, during that framework, uh, this uh, he was a partner in a law firm downtown. So out of that grew the group that uh, later became uh, the Creep Committee, if you remember that name. And that was Bob Dole that named it that, a Republican <laughs> committee to reelect the president. And uh, I, I was uh, involved in that in... Uh, uh, and then later, too, uh, that campaign. And I was uh, one of the principals in the uh, Speakers Bureau. And so I would go out and speak to groups wherever I was invited or debate. One time I was invited out to debate Jerry Voorhees, was his name, who was an attorney from the eastern part of L.A. Uh, and uh, had been a congressman back in uh, the 40s. In fact, he was the congressman that Richard Nixon beat in 1948 when he ran and was elected. Was it 40? No. 1946, pardon me, when he uh, uh, was elected for the first time. And he had been a lawyer in Norway, no, uh, Whittier. And this guy was the incumbent. So I said, I feel privileged all these years later to be debating Jerry Vorey. But at any rate, uh, so what, that was a shoe-in really for Nixon because everything was just, hey, who did he have to run against? Uh, the senator from South Dakota, McGovern who was a very liberal guy. And that's why we could never make any sense out of that Watergate nonsense, because they didn't need to do it to win. It was just an ego trip on the part of some people. But, uh, you know, like when we were talking about the the Trump thing and the fact that, you know, they were bussing in Amish and different people that had never voted before. And, yeah. you know, people came out that had been in, uh, and I remember you, you told me the story about Richard Nixon talking about the silent majority That's right. in this country and if there was a way to harness if we this silent majority. These are the people that will vote for us if we can find them. And that's what we were doing at that time. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, led me uh, along, and I met along the way, uh, was uh, John Connolly, if you remember him. He at one time was at the, had been the governor of Texas, and he was in the car with Kennedy. Remember when Kennedy oh, was shot yeah, in Dallas, and he had a bullet go through him yeah. too? 
Yeah, and he was a very interesting man. And uh, he had decided to um, switch parties. And uh, he had been a Texas Democrat anyway, which was like a Republican. Yeah, Cal- California days. Republican and Texas Democrat about yeah. the same. It's just that, yeah, that, uh, that Texas Republican is uh, pretty far out there you <laughs> yeah. know, in terms of what we're looking at. Well, they, that, at that time, you know, with LBJ and his power here, you were a pretty conservative guy, even though you're a... And Conley was a fascinating guy. He had been a son of a woodcutter. And the Murchisons kind of made him go... And they're a big Texas family. And so I got to meet him uh, at a men's club in Los Angeles, introduced to him, and he said, let's stay in contact. And he was, it was after that, the Nixon campaign, but before Nixon resigned. In fact, um, uh, he at one time was named by Nixon to become the Secretary of the Treasury, I think, for a short while. And then he didn't know that all this stuff was going on, as most of the people in the White House didn't, that Watergate was going to topple him like it did. Mm-hmm. Hey, but uh, Nixon was a sharp guy. He was a smart dude. Oh, very smart. And in a small group of people, he could be so engaging. He was very wooden when he balked in front of large groups, in my opinion. But, gee, he, he could talk. And, you know, it was, and I didn't get to know him very well. But, you know, I, I was certainly in, in excited about him and sense that I would work for him for the presidency, especially against uh, the people he was running against. In, uh, in, in contrast, uh, Ronald Reagan, you, you knew Ronald Reagan and had met him? Well, I didn't. I knew him, but I, I certainly uh, knew that he was uh, uh, interested in political office. And I had friends who were Goldwater people. They were crazy about Goldwater. In fact, the Goldwater's son was a, uh, a partner in business with a friend of mine. And, and uh, Gene Muller, they went to the convention and all that kind of thing. So uh, Goldwater was the guy then on the horizon, and he was running against LBJ in 64. And that's when Reagan first surfaced as a political entity, really. He had been in the background before and had been a Democrat for all those years. And then uh, here he ends up uh, uh, becoming a third-party candidate, you might say. And uh, it didn't come to pass, but he then gave speeches endorsing Goldwater and would be on the radio and using his talent as an actor. You know, he was a great speaker and could really put across a message. And then he got back to California and they started grooming him to become the governor of, uh, uh, in the race in 1966. And, you know, there were some big backers in Southern California that put it together. And really, he was almost, uh, I think, uh, out of a job. Uh, He had been the general electric uh, spokesman on television, and they put the kitchens together and all of that, and uh, he got too political or something. So he was ready to do something different, and next thing you know, they said, well, let's groom him, and we'll get a couple of uh, guys who are smart political operatives who were Spencer Roberts was the name of the firm. And Stu Spencer's still alive. Bill Roberts is dead, but um, he uh, um, packaged Reagan. And Reagan, you know, was a good speaker, could remember his lines, and yeah. people knew his name. Yeah. And that really propelled him. And he's a very affable guy, and not a died in the wool right winger at all. 
you know, when he was governor, he signed the most liberal abortion law of any of the states that's still in existence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He later said, I'm sorry I did it, but he did it. You know, he had a lot of things like that that were very, um, uh, you know, certainly not right-wing Republican type of issues. Mm-hmm. So he then ended up being a, uh, a governor in California and uh, a pretty popular guy. He could reach across the aisle and, and handle things with the Democrats and he could deal with others and, you know, and manage to, uh, uh, to um, you know, be what I consider a very successful governor. And then he uh, uh, went on, and I knew many of the people that worked with him. Uh, one fellow I'd been in law school with uh, was his legislative guy, George Steffes. And, uh, and being in Sacramento at that time was uh, a good experience, uh, dealing with the governor's office and all of these kind of legislative issues. But uh, he then, you know, went on to become uh, the president. And, uh, and then when he ran against George, I mean, uh, Ford, you remember uh, when, uh, when Ford filled out the unexpired term of Nixon, then when Ford wanted to run for the next office uh, and, you know, had been the incumbent president, he really had the right to do that. They felt in the Republican Party, there was a group that wanted to push Reagan, and at the convention, you know, he was a force they were contending with, but they managed to keep him from getting the nomination. And from probably uh, Reagan's point of view, it well, I don't know, he beat Jimmy Carter four years later, but uh, <laughs> he probably the Republican Party would have been mad at him for having taken George, or taken uh, uh, the president, the incumbent down, which they would have felt that Ford was do that job because he had stepped into it. Plus he had uh, pardoned Nixon, so that later came to haunt him, as a matter of fact. But uh, And then everything else is history. And, uh, well, I didn't tell you about one of my enterprises. I uh, uh, got involved, well, it would have been in the early 80s, of going to China and uh, manufacturing in Chinese company uh, down jackets. And they were knockoffs for some very popular brands that were made here. Here, And I and a fellow that is father of a friend of John's, uh, he was in the uh, sunglass business. And uh, he would uh, work for Ice-Ski, which was a sunglass outfit that had a sticker on the side. And he would go out to all of the Southeast Asia army bases, and they would sell to the PXs and that kind of thing. So he had contacts, and he and I put this together and went to Shanghai and started bringing them here and selling them, and we still got some left. And then uh, uh, he decided to go in a different direction than I did, so... Uh, he brought another partner in and bought me out. <clears throat> but it was a grand time to be there because uh, in those years, Nixon had just come to China in, what was it, 76, 78, something like that. So it, we were still an oddity, you know, and you'd mm-hmm. go running in Shanghai. And I was the tallest guy on the street. <laughs> 
you know, and they'd want to stop and talk English with you because they wanted to sharpen up their skills. Mm -hmm. At that time, uh, uh, Mao, I don't believe, was still in charge, but Cho Enlai may have been. And so they, uh, uh, it was still walking around a Mao coach, you know, and the people that in China, you could tell where they were economically by the cut of their cloth and the texture of it. Uh, the bosses had the finer stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, they'd also, um, you know, be able to drive cars and live in nicer places. And and uh, uh, but uh, it was a, a tremendous time. We were buyers. We were um, what would you call? Know, uh, we were merchants. Well, that's bandits. part of it, but we were businessmen. <laughs> You're bandits. Business. Bandits. And the guy that got us the connection was an Italian who manufactures Dolomite ski gear, if you know that name. And uh, so <laughs> I did that for about four years, and it, I didn't lose any money, let's put it that way. It's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty good, and, uh, uh, you know, we're uh, so happy that John is, my wife and I, uh, is carrying on what he had started in Los Angeles and Orange Counties. Uh, in continuing to do this kind of thing, I'm surrounded by people that are as interested in he is as making this work and moving forward on a philosophy that I think will prevail in the end. And we can move from what had been CrossFit, CrossFit football, to a much better way of handling that kind of a fitness program that's, I think, America's overdue in hearing about. There's well, yeah. A, there, yeah, there was an old story of lifting weights. It's just count, count to 10. Over oh, yeah. I, I, I told them the story about when I told you I wanted to lift weights, and you were oh. like, ah, it's just count to 10 over and over again. <laughs> You'd be a real dummy to do that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, he's like, ah, I said we're going to get you anywhere. And I'm like, look, uh, this lifting weights thing got me pretty far. Yeah, so. it sure has. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess for the listeners... I'm not sure about the dummy part. <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners, I mean, every time we come to a, a family gig at uh, John's house, it's like Bob always holds court and people are just kind of sitting there. So we thought it'd be a cool experience to just get some story time. And I think that's what we've accomplished. I know you got it. You have a flight to catch, don't you? We story do. Uh-huh. We're due out at 5.55. And I'm sure Bob John's is. Driving uh, yeah, she, yeah, Doris yeah. already came and gave me the... Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my, my mom believes in getting the airport uh you know seven oh. to nine hours early just to make sure there's any problems in that whereas my dad's like me oh. where it's uh 25 minutes is uh is, 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 you is can come and deny this if you so, like yeah. well cool well uh i guess yeah that's a wrap thank you very much for hanging with us well, on our 200th episode and yeah. uh, you know hopefully we'll be around for 201 let's do it sounds good all right, all right. Bye. now it's time for you to empower your performance 200 episodes in and we are still shamelessly promoting ourselves. Remember that to truly incorporate the Power Athlete methodology, you need to wrap your mind around the science. With the Power Athlete Academy, you'll be able to confidently apply our training systems and even create your own based on the knowledge you'll gain from this comprehensive course. Guaranteed to make you smarter and better looking, the Academy will challenge the old noodle and promote an almost offensive degree of vascularity. And now I leave you with some words from the ever-coy, always-reserved Doris Wellborn. He wants the whole court there, the judge and everyone, and then he wants to come in like King Robert. 
you know, I like to go to the doctor maybe 10 minutes ahead of time so I can start making the nurses nervous. <laughs> so I just stood up and said, this is over, get out. So he said to me, this is my office. I can't believe that. Why do you not have good memories about your mother? Until next time, bye!